Scripture today is John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken a They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by, by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept, she stooped to look in to the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Teacher, uh, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You may be seated. Thank you, Randy, and thank you, everybody involved with the music today. Wow. We have been blessed. I want to tell you a story this morning and share with you about a story. And of course, you know what story we're going to be talking about. That's the one that we just read in John chapter 20. But people get a little bit strange. Uh, They get a little bit sideways with me sometimes when I use the word story in reference to the Bible. But let's just relax a little bit and realize that there's several different types of story that we can talk about. We can talk about true stories. Those are stories grounded in fact, right? Uh, Grounded in real life events. There's fictional stories, and those are stories in which the characters, the places, the events are all made up in someone's mind, right? Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote. Totally fictional, right? My favorite, but totally fictional. You younger folks don't know what I'm talking about, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, and then there's legends, right? Legends may, may be kind of a blend, right? You have, you have, Perhaps there's a person or a group of people that are grounded in some sort of fact, but the details of their lives have been vastly, vastly overblown, right? When I was a kid, I learned about uh, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox. Anybody remember learning about Paul Bunyan and Babe? Now, a lot of lumberjacks were needed to, you know, 
get this country uh, where, you know, to get land cleared so we could till it and build buildings and cities and everything like that. And there may have been a lumberjack once upon a time named Paul Bunyan. Who knows? But I doubt that he dug the Great Lakes, okay? That's, you know, I, I doubt that he carved out the Grand Canyon, and I really doubt that one guy single-handedly cleared the Great Plains. That's part of Paul Bunyan lore, but that's legend, right? Nobody, no one single person could do any of that stuff. Um, but anyway, you get the idea. That's why we call it a legend or a tall tale is what I was told that it was back in the day. The story that we want to talk about this morning is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, smart people, people who have lots of words and symbols after their name, you know, so-and-so, MDiv, PhD, whatever, people that are smart have fought for a long period of time about what is what, under what category do we put the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Do we put it in the true, it's a true story, it's a fictional story, or do we place it in that third category of, eh, there was a guy named Jesus, but re- resurrecting from the dead. I mean, nobody can do that. So that's all just made up stuff, right? So smart people have done that for a while. Now, here's the complicating factor. The complicating factor is that the story of Jesus' life has a lot of truth to it, even by unbiblical standards. What I mean by that is, as you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four different writers, the first four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, there's four different writers who write about the events of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. There's different accounts. But an objective third-party person would say, yeah, but they were followers of Jesus, so they were probably biased, and they may have conspired to come together and say, uh, this, let's make up this story, and let's, let's have everybody, let's publish our stuff so that everybody will maybe believe it. The only wrinkle in that problem is that there's lots of extra-biblical literature out there, literature by folks like Josephus and Tacitus, and there's others that I didn't put up on the screen uh, that would that would at least say that they were aware of a fellow named Jesus. They were aware that some folks thought he was the Christ, and they were even aware that his followers had concluded that he had risen from the dead. And, you know, Christians were kind of, uh, you know, they were a different cut of people back in the day. There's, there's even some correspondence from this, this one Roman governor named Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger was having a problem. You see, in those days, they, they thought that the Roman emperor was a god and that he was the person, the one that everybody should give their allegiance to. And yet there were these Christians running around his neck of the woods who only would give their allegiance to God. And so he wrote a letter to his superior saying, what do I do about these people? They're kind of annoying. <laughs> they, they won't listen. They won't worship Caesar. They won't obey when, when what we ask them to do goes against what Jesus has said. What are we going to do with these people? So what I'm saying is, is that clearly I don't think the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead could any, in any way be categorized as fictional. There's too much historical record that we have on file. So if it's, if it's not fiction, that leaves two possibilities. It's either true or it's a really wild legend. Because let's face it, you know, kind of like 
Paul Bunyan and Babe Blue Ox. I mean, how many people do you know that have walked on water? That have healed sick people with the touch of their hand? That have cast out demons with a word? That have taken a small amount of food and multiplied it to feed vast multitudes of people? How many people do you know that have resurrected from the dead? One. Now listen. Uh, if you have, let me just, this is an honest question. If you have a friend named Bob, let's just call him Bob. You could call him Leroy, but let's call him Bob. Let's say that you have a friend named Bob and your friend named Bob says, I'm old and I'm, you know, doctors say I don't have much more time here. So, uh, you know, I'm probably going to die soon. Please visit my graveside three days after because you wait and see. I'm resurrecting from the dead. And you get there three days later. What do you expect to see? Nothing, right? The dirt's still there. Everything's still in place. You, you, you think Bob is kind of nuts. So there is a lot of things in the, in Jesus' life that would lend itself towards us thinking that it's legend. Except for one, there's a lot of things to, to consider, but I want you to consider one thing this morning. We're, we're gathered here in this room. It's been 2000 plus years. And we're still Christians all over the world have gathered themselves. Jesus was a Jew and their holy day was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. They would take and they would rest the Sabbath day. Jesus came, he died on the cross. He resurrected on the first day of the week. And so people who follow Jesus now count Sunday as their day of worship and their day of, of rest and worship. Why is that? Perhaps you grew up in church and you come to church every Sunday and Easter Sunday is just a normal Sunday, but perhaps you grew up in a culture where going to church on Easter was just the right thing to do. That's the thing to do. Easter Sunday, you go to church. Don't those cultural markers and things, don't those things mean anything to you? It, whatever the reason that, 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 that it exists, that you're here today, realize this. Something happened over 2,000 years ago. Something happened to cause people to abandon Saturday and to embrace Sunday, the first day, what we call Resurrection Day, as the day to gather and worship. And it's weird, right? Because in our human experience, what do we see? We see that when, when leaders arise in the culture, whatever leader it is, when leaders arise in the culture, they typically hit the height of their popularity while they're alive. In other words, after they're dead, or per perhaps, you know, they no longer hold office, they're dead, whatever, folks maybe don't follow them as much anymore and their, their popularity kind of goes down. Do you realize that the church launched after Jesus Christ had died, after he resurrected from the dead, after he ascended to heaven, then came the day of Pentecost and the initiation of the church. And from that moment to now, Sunday morning, Christians have gathered. Folks, this is more than a legend that we're talking about. Because people don't, I, do you know anybody who gathers to worship Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox on a particular day of the week? People don't, don't change their lives for a legend. Why is this? Is it because Jesus spoke so eloquently and we can listen to his sermons today? Well, we don't have his MP3s. We don't have his podcasts, you know? Those that technology didn't, listen, didn't work back then. It wasn't around. Is it because of the best-selling book that he wrote when he was alive? Well, the printing press didn't come along until the, what, 1500s? 
I guess he could have handwritten down some stuff, but we don't even have anything like that. Is it because of his vast military accomplishments in rescuing Israel from the Roman Empire? No, he didn't even enlist. Why did the Christian movement explode? Why has there been an unbroken string of gatherings on the first day of each week by Christians for over 2,000 years? That's the story that we're going to talk about today. And here's the big question. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ meaningful to you today? And I've arranged this in a particular outline, and I just want to, I just want to get, get going here. This is, this is a little bit less than what I normally do, which is to work my way through a particular text of Scripture. And this is more like, I don't know what you're going to call it, like an explanation of why the resurrection, maybe the theology of the resurrection or an explanation of why the resurrection is so important using God's word to guide us. But let's first talk about God. I think in order for us to have a conversation about this, we've got to talk about who we're dealing with here, God. And let's talk about his nature, because it's kind of interesting. What's interesting about it is, because, is as soon as you start reading the Bible, like if you turn to the beginning page one of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, and you start reading, immediately your brain starts to, you know, starts to have questions. So in Genesis chapter one, verse one, we see this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so far, so good, right? Until you do a little bit of work and you figure out that the Bible wasn't originally written in English, it was written in Hebrew, okay? So you go and you look at the original language and the word God, the word that is translated into our English as God is the word in Hebrew, Elohim, and that word is plural. So you say to yourself, well, okay, well, they translated this wrong. It should be in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth, right? That's what it should mean. Oh, okay, so then you read on. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us create man in our image and after our likeness. And you go, okay, see, I got it right. God is plural, there's lots of God, there must be lots of gods, and, and then that's the way it is. And so, okay, I, I get it now. So you keep reading in your Bible and eventually you get to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then your brain starts to melt. And you go, this book isn't trustworthy because at the beginning it said there's a bunch of gods, you know, let us make God, in our, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And now it's telling me there's only one. And then your brain really starts to melt down when you get to Matthew chapter three at the baptism of Jesus Christ where you read this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom, with whom I am well pleased. And at that point, you just throw the papers up in the air and you walk off because he's like, what? I'm confused. And what we, what we come to understand in reading the Bible is that, it, because in that scene, in Jesus' baptism, we see God the Son being baptized, God the Spirit descending like a dove, and God the Father saying, speaking from heaven. And so what we come to understand with, with more study of God's word is we've come to understand God as being somewhat strange to us because the Bible describes him as one, clearly in Deuteronomy 6 and other places, God is one, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity, and it doesn't compute in our human brains. 
And our reaction to that is kind of important because we can choose to either see that as a problem in the way that God has described himself or, and this is where I'm at, we can choose to say, God has revealed himself to me in a way that doesn't make sense to my brain and that informs my brain that he is, he's different. He's different. He's, we call it set apart. He's holy. That's what that means, set apart. He's, he's altogether different than us because I am just one guy. And, you know, I, I, I don't have like a part of me that's the spirit, a part of me that's the son, a part of me that's the father. I don't have that. So God is something different. He's set apart. He's not like us. We're made in his image, but there's something different. There's something higher about him. Now, we also learn about his purpose, right? Because we read, as we start reading the Bible and we read in Genesis chapter one and two, and we read about a God who created human beings, Adam and Eve, male and female, he created us and he's in relationship. They're talking to what God is talking to them. They're talking back and they're in this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden, a a garden that's described as a place of, of precious stones and lush vegetation, precious, precious metals. And, and the relationship is such that there's even complete transparency. I don't, I'm going to speak in Southern to you here for just a minute. I'm from the North, but I'm going to speak to you in Southern. Adam and Eve were naked. They didn't have any clothes on. There, there was nothing between them. There was nothing between them and God. There was nothing between Adam and Eve. They, there was, it was a life of complete transparency and it was a life of sustenance. They had food to eat. The veget, the, the garden produced vegetation. And also in the midst of the garden, the Bible tells us there was the tree of life. And there was an authority structure as well. God made it very clear to them that he was in charge by giving them one and only one rule. You can eat of any tree that you want, but of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. In that day that you eat of it, you will die. There you go. It was a great relationship. It was a clear, well-defined relationship. I'm God. You're my people. We're dwelling together, but I'm in charge. First Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's talking about the church here in First Peter 2.9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's purpose, and this is shocking. If, you don't, if you've never heard this before, this is earth shattering. God's purpose seems to be to have a relationship with the people that he has created. Not because he needs us, but because he has decided that that's what he wants to do. He, he wants to have a relationship with the people that he's created. And by the time you reach the end of the Bible, you get to the book of Revelation, what do you see? You see like the Garden of Eden 2.0 in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And you see God dwelling with his people. You also see his perfection. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine, I want you to imagine that you woke up this morning and you knew exactly what you were going to do today, right? After you go to church and, and, and you were going to know exactly the people that you were going to greet at church, the words that you were going to speak to them, and that those words would be edifying and you would be like a life-giving person. And that after church, you were going to do the exact right things to, to absolutely 
promote the greatest relationships in your life, to absolutely build others up the best that you can. And, and when you put your head down on the pillow tonight, everything that you needed to accomplish today would get done. Does any, can anybody relate to a life like that? Because I can't. I get up in the morning and I, and I, well, should I do this or should I do that? And sometimes I, I lose a lot of time in my indecision because I, I don't always see clearly what to do. God is perfect. God is perfect. And he, he doesn't wake up because God never sleeps, but he knows exactly what to do. He knows the exact recipe of what I need in my life and what you need in your life to help us to grow and change and become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And he's active all the time doing these things. So we have this God who is made in, he has made us in his image, but also at the same time, not like us. He's different. And what makes him different largely, but not completely, is his perfection. Now, we're going to learn what separates us from God, but, but for now, just let us dwell on that. God is perfect. God in his perfection is able to do something that we find almost completely impossible to do. And that's this. To love us, to love others perfectly, and at the same time, absolutely positively hate, with perfection, hate, the sin that is in them. Does that make sense? God is able, when somebody ticks us off, when somebody's annoying to us, when somebody is, you know, uh, maybe they're hostile towards us, they steal from us, they trash our names on social media or in public or whatever, the easy thing to do, the thing that we default to is we just don't hang around that person anymore. And secretly, sometimes we hope that bad things would happen or that when no one's looking, we can kind of stick a knife in their tire. People do that, you know. They do worse. But God is not like that. God is able to perfectly love a person while at the same time perfectly wanting justice, demanding justice for their sin and, and wanting to vent his wrath on their sin. And I want you to consider that as we move to our next section because the next session we're talking about our sin. God in his perfection... God is perfect, but ever since Adam decided, and you can read about this in Genesis chapter three, ever since Adam decided to rebel against God, Adam was given one rule and he was, he was also given the, the responsibility to communicate that rule to his wife, Eve. And, and, but he didn't. And ever since Adam decided to rebel against God in the garden, sin has been a part of our human condition. Nobody in this room is perfect. You might have an uncle at the Easter table today that thinks he's perfect but he's not, okay? Nobody is perfect. The definition of sin, let me give that to you, is simply missing the mark of God's perfection. That's all it means. It means missing the mark of God's perfection. And so the impact of sin to the human race, it is impossible for me to stand behind this pulpit today and communicate to you or to overstate to you the impact of sin, it's messed with our minds. It's messed with our relationships. It's messed with our lives. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's caused wars. It's caused people who worship and follow or say they worship and follow Christ to do egregious things in Jesus' name. It, and worse, it's, it's caused an enormous amount and is causing an enormous amount of damage all the time. But there's some characteristics of sin I want to share with you. First of all, it's alluring. Sin is alluring. That idea that 
God has said I should do something this way, but I'm going to, I have a better way. I know better. Me and my sin-stained brain, me and my ways that aren't always right, me, I know better than God, and so I'm going to do it my way. And so we read in James chapter 1, right, that um, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It is very alluring. It's also very destructive, right? In Galatians chapter 5, we read about the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But in the verses before that, we read about a whole list of things that are the works of the flesh, meaning these are sinful things. Now, let me ask you this objectively. Let's say that we're gonna get, you're going to get up from your chairs right now and you're going to go home and you're going to sit down at the table for Easter lunch or Easter dinner tonight. Let me, let me tell you this. Let me, let's introduce this into the gathering. Sexual immorality, impurity, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Just Let's just introduce just some fits of anger. How's that Easter dinner going to go? Just with fits of anger. Forget about the rest of the list. Just somebody says, pass the butter, and I don't know, Aunt Mabel's a little bit slow, and, and maybe she can't hear all that well, and so she doesn't hear. So, so pass the butter a little bit louder, and Aunt Mabel doesn't pass the butter, and then a hand smacks down on the table, and the ham goes flying, and I told you to pass the butter! Just fits of anger. It's not, it's going to be a very awkward Easter, right? These are the things that sin does. They're destructive. They break relationships. These are not characteristics of the people that I want to hang around with. But sin is also divisive. Divisive. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages, of course, are what we earn when we do things. And what the Bible tells us is by our sin, what we're earning is death, separation from God. It divides us from God who is perfect. And this is the condition that we find ourselves in. Now, men and women throughout the ages have written about sin and its effect on us, but let me just point you to three different examples of of some famous people that you might know that have said a word or two about what sin can do to your conscience, just your conscience. In other words, it can make you unable to be able to discern truth. So Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, once said, you can send yourself into an utter deadness of conscience, and that is the first wage of your sin. In other words, if you give your life over to sinful activity, pretty soon you start to reason to yourself, this isn't that bad, and you don't know how deep you're in it. Billy Graham said the most devastating effect of sin is that by it we are blinded to it. I mean, this sounds more like a, dr- a drug overdose, doesn't it? Like you, you take a drug and then you, d- you don't realize that you're in trouble. And then Oswald Chambers uh, wrote this, sin enough and you will be unconscious of sin. Many of you know that I, uh, <clears throat> many of you know I grew up on a farm and uh, on our farm we had hogs. Um, and so it, we had this uh, hog building where the little hogs would, little pigs would come in before they would get to a certain weight and then they would go live the rest of their days outside before they went to the, sorry kids, uh, they went to make um, sausage. 
Lots of sausage, you know, and pork chops. But anyway, um, the way these hog houses work, right, is that the, the hogs live in there and they eat and they drink. But when you eat and drink, you also do other things. And when they did those other things, their waste flowed down into a pit that once a month, it was my job, at least for a time, to pump it out. My dad's here, so I can't tell any fibs, right? Once, <laughs> once a month, I would pump out the pit. And uh, I remember the first time I learned, don't turn into the wind when you're spreading manure. <laughs> I learned that by doing it. Don't turn into the wind when you're spreading manure. Okay, so anyway, so, but the thing about the pit, the thing about the pit is that sometimes, you know, a water line would break or something and, and, and people would have to, we didn't do this, but people would have to go down into that pit, you know, put on some waders or something or just way down into the, the filth and repair something. And what they didn't realize, if they, if they weren't smart, if they didn't do their homework, they wouldn't realize that the concentration of methane gas emanating from that pit, if you walked in there and tried to do a repair, like down into the pit, you would not get enough oxygen and your, your brain would become starved of oxygen and you would pass out into the filth where you would likely drown because it was pretty liquid. It was kind of a slurry. It was gross, can I just say? And, but, but the whole time that you're down there and you're going and maybe you're wading across to do some work in there, you don't realize until you pass out that it, this is kind of what sin is like, right? You don't know how destructive it is until you're in it. And you're, it's bad. It's not something that you want to toy with. And yet, it's so pervasive in our lives. It's so pervasive that First John tells us that if, you, if we say we have no sin, we lie. It's part of our everyday lives. Sinning is part of our everyday lives. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight against it. We should. I'm saying that it's always going to be there and we're always going to be battling against it as human beings before we go be with the Lord. So that's the situation that we find ourselves in, folks. God in his perfection has created a people for himself. His people have sinned, thus creating a separation, a, a chasm, a gulf between us and God that is that can't be crossed, right? Because although God loves us with perfection, he also hates sin. He, he loves justice and he's, he's perfectly just and he will punish sin with perfect wrath. That's the situation that we found ourselves in. And God would have been perfectly righteous to just destroy the whole thing and start over and kind of do a whole reboot with humanity 2.0. But he didn't. He chose a different path. God chose a different path, a path that would satisfy his perfect hatred of sin in order that he might then lavish us with his perfect love. And that's what happened next. Jesus paid it. He paid for our sin. Think about it. How could a perfect God accept we who have missed the mark of God's perfection by a lot, by the way? How could God's perfect justice be satisfied? The only way that that was possible, according to what we understand in God's word, is that God had to make, God himself had to make a perfect sacrifice. So you know, earlier I was talking about how God is three in one. He's one God, he's in three persons. God the Father sent God the Son to this earth, and God the Son came willingly. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, the incarnation, Jesus coming to the earth, born of a virgin. And he sent his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to the earth. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And in doing some certain things, he showed us who he was. He, For example, he was able to heal the sick by touching them, to drive out demons with just the very word of his mouth, 
And he taught us to live, how to live in a right relationship with God and with our fellow man. But on Friday, this past Friday, we gathered here in this very room to remember the fact that Jesus was murdered, having done nothing wrong. The very religious people that were of his faith, the Jewish faith, and the very, the very uh, people uh, that were close to him even betrayed him, and he was murdered. He was put up on a cross, and his death because he was the only one who was perfect, who was free from sin, his death satisfied the perfect wrath of God. And it quenched the perfect justice of God. It was, and that was the only thing that could do it. It was the only thing that could get, satisfy God's perfect hatred of sin was a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus paid it. He paid your sin debt and mine. He paid our sin debt. 1 John 4.10 says this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Now, propitiation is just a big fancy word that means that God's wrath was satisfied. Jesus came and satisfied God's wrath by dying on the cross. And his, yeah, his perfect wrath has been satisfied. God's perfect wrath has been satisfied in Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, very importantly, this is, this is, this is the key, and if you haven't been paying too much, if you've zoned out for a little bit, uh, now's the time to come back, because now I'm gonna answer the question, who gets to receive this payment? On who is the payment for your sin applied Everyone. It's open, it's offered to everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone, right? Everyone. There's no discrimination. The Bible makes it very clear that there's no such no no differentiation between Jew or Greek, between slave or free, that all this, this offer of salvation, this offer of the payment of sin has been open to everyone. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what, you, you know, what level of sin you're at in your life right now. This, this offer is open to you. But you have to receive it. And the Bible makes it very clear that belief is the key. Belief is the key to receive the gift. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, the Son, what does that mean to believe? What does that mean? I'll tell you. My best understanding is that it believe, believe means this, that first you must have knowledge. And that's kind of what I'm sharing with you today, right? I'm sharing with you the facts of what happened. And you need to know that. You need to know the facts. But you also have to believe, you have to also take it to be true. That's assent, right? You have to, you have to believe that those facts are real, that Jesus was a real historic person, that he died on the cross for your sin, but there's this third thing, and this is the tricky part for so many people. This is the challenge, is you have to trust. 
And, and this is the best way that I could think of to describe trust, that you have to put the weight of your life on it. What do I mean by that? Let me try to illustrate. Uh, <clears throat> let's say that you are contracted to build a 100-story skyscraper, 100-story tall skyscraper in downtown Delaware. Wouldn't that be awesome? A 100-story tall skyscraper in downtown Delaware. And you've got all the knowledge of how to do that. Like you went to college, you studied architecture and engineering. You can do the math. You've got your graph paper and you sketch it out and you do the math. Like how strong do the girders need to be? And how deep do we have to dig the foundation and pour the concrete? And how big do the bolts have to be to hold the whole thing together? And you've got it all figured out. And they, that you put the plans down on paper and they build that thing. You've got knowledge. You've got assent. And then on opening day, you know, you go and you, you, you get the big old scissors, you know, that they give. I don't know where they get those scissors, but you get the big old scissors and you cut the big old ribbon. And then somebody says, Hey, Mr. Designer or Mrs. Designer, Miss Designer. Hey, let's go up and see what it looks like from the hundredth floor. And you go, no way. I am not going up there. Are you kidding me? And they're like, what's your problem? Well, your problem is you have a trust issue. You, you know, you've done the math. You know it's good. You believe it to be true. But when it comes to you putting your life into jeopardy, <laughs> right? Into some sort of risk, no way. And I, I find that a lot of Christians today are like that. They believe in Jesus intellectually. They know the knowledge. They might even... Defend it. They might even believe that it's actually true. But when the Bible says, when God's word says you need to forsake your sin, to turn away from your sin and to begin to walk in Jesus' way, they say, but on that particular point, I know better. Because the Bible is old. It was written by men many years ago. And all the little arguments that come out all the time come out and they say, so I'm going to do it my way. So we have to trust. We have to believe. Believe means knowledge, assent, and trust. And then finally, what the result of this is, is that if you, tr- if you believe, you are accepted as his children. You, do you hear what I'm saying? We, we sang a song about that earlier. We sang uh, the adopted is given a name. We sang a song about that. That when you believe in God, when you believe in God through Jesus Christ, trusting him, that, that he actually takes you to be one of his children. John 1.12 says this, but to him who did receive him, to, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's just a different year, folks. And what does that all mean? It means this. It means life. And that, in that, I want to just point out a few observations about the text this morning in John chapter 20. And it, this won't take but a minute. The, the ladies, the disciples, whether they be Mary Magdalene, the, the Peter or John, and I always love how John describes himself as the, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus loved. Anyway, they're going to the tomb. What are they expecting to find there? What are they expecting to find, folks? In every one of the Gospels, they're going there to expecting to find a dead body. This Jesus who healed the sick, who cleansed the leper, who cast out demons, who resurrected Lazarus from the dead, who 
proclaimed to his followers numerous times, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be killed. On the third day, I'm gonna rise again. They still had it stuck in their mind. They were still... Had, they still had it stuck in their mind that they were going to go to that tomb and they were going to find a body. Mark's account tells us that the ladies brought all these heavy spices and stuff because they were going to anoint the body so it didn't stink during the decomposition process, so it wouldn't be offensive. And these folks were coming to find a dead body, and what they found instead was an empty tomb. And what Mary Magdalene found was Jesus himself, who she probably didn't recognize at first. Some scholars believe because he had a glorified body, he had been transformed. We don't know that to be true, but, but Mary, it could have just been Mary's unbelief. But, but when he said that word to her, Mary, in his voice, she knew immediately that this was Jesus. And he said to her, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. That's just incredible stuff. Not just that he said that, but that all of Jesus' predictions about who he was and what he came to accomplish came true. Jesus rose from the dead. And so part of that life is recognizing that Jesus is the firstborn. When I say firstborn, what I mean? I mean that because Jesus resurrected from the dead, because he defeated the grave, that means that, that we, who he promised would happen the same thing, that we would also be eventually uh, with him when we die and then we, we would be given glorified bodies eventually, that that will come to pass as well. First Corinthians fifteen twenty says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In resurrecting from the dead, we can be 100% sure that death has been completely defeated and Jesus Christ is truly God in the flesh. And when I say defeated, I'm talking about for those that receive that gift through belief. We also, we also learn in God's word that, that what that life means is that we've been transferred. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the, and I love, I love, okay, I love that Colossians doesn't say that we have been transferred, from, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the domain or the domain of light. It says we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved, of his beloved son. I mean, those are two different places, folks. I don't know, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of God's beloved son. So we've been transferred. And once a person is saved, we believe that they will, they are saved. They've made, they've believed and they are saved. But then God does something even more as he begins to transform our lives. He begins to, as we in faith, as we believing people begin to read God's word and see what it says and we, we turn away from our sin and we begin, to, we, we begin to walk in his ways that God takes up residence in our lives through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and he begins to transform us. And so we read in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Folks, God is God is not promising us or doing in us any small thing. It's a very large thing. He has sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to live a perfect life, which he accomplished, to die on the cross, which he accomplished, to resurrect from the dead, which he accomplished, so that his perfect wrath and his perfect justice could be satisfied, unleashing his perfect love on all who would believe. Have you believed? 
Have you understood from a knowledge standpoint the good news? Do you believe that it's true and are you resting the weight of your life on it? Because if you have, you are, you are, <laughs> you are a very favored person and if you have not, then I want to invite you and say that the Bible makes it very clear that today, right now, the door of salvation is open to you. It's open to you. You just simply need to believe, which I've already explained exactly what that means. Why wait? Why tarry another day not knowing what each day brings? We've seen some pretty crazy things happening in this world, and we just don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Anyway, I just want to conclude here a little bit by saying that this outline follows this uh, this plan, right? Uh, it spells out the word gospel, right? God, our sins paid everyone life. I didn't make that up. I scavenged that from some other ministry, but uh, dare to share or I don't think I'll get too mad about it. But this is the good news. What I just explained to you is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important and why it is good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that his payment for your sin was valid. I like the way one man says it. It means the check cleared. The check that Jesus Christ wrote to pay for your sins when he resurrected, that means it cleared. The check cleared. Your sins have been paid in full. And this is such good news that you should believe it. And I'm asking you today, won't you? If you haven't yet made that decision, won't you make that decision today? There's going to be an elder here. I'm going to be by the door. Uh, if, if you want to get together and talk, I will, I will have lunch with you. I will treat you to lunch. I will answer every single question I possibly can. Slip me your name and number. I mean, I'll, I'll, we'll do it. If I had to choose between this story being a legend or it being true, I'm convinced that this story, legend should be crossed out. Sorry, my bad. I'm convinced that this work, that this story is absolutely positively true. And you're sitting where you are in this room today is evidence of that. You have to admit. So by way of application, let me just say this. Uh, it's pretty simple, right? First is repent, turn away from your sin. If, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ already and you, you're tinkering with, toying with sin in your life, it's time to put it away. I mean, it's killing you anyway, right? It's hurting you and those around you. So repent, turn away from your sin. And then believe. Trust that Jesus Christ's payment by his death on the cross is sufficient to take away your sin. Believe. Know that it's true. And then rest the weight of your life on it. And then grow and change. Uh, Jesus is not just interested in rescuing, rescuing you from hell, but he's actually interested in changing your life and making you more like him. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us called Easter. We thank you that it's the day that we think about and celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus, from the dead. And Father, I just pray that we would each one of us individually consider the things that have been shared here this morning, either in song in word or by your word, and that we would each examine our lives. Have we yet believed? And if not, why not? Have we believed, but we're not yet trusting as we should? 
What are we going to change? And Father, to leave this place this morning in tremendous gratitude for what you've done for us. Again, we recognize that you, Father, would have been totally righteous to destroy, to wipe out, and to start again. But your your love, your grace, your mercy has been made even more evident to us by what by the plan that you made in sending your son, Jesus, and all that he accomplished. We thank you for that, Father. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.